there, and I invite you to turn to Genesis 15 in your copies of the Scriptures. While you're doing that, I'm going to speak to the children a moment. We just heard from Daniel chapter 5, and at the end of the D- Daniel chapter 5, we heard about Darius, the king of the Medes, and uh, he was 62 years old. Well, this week, I turned 62. So as you look at Pastor today, you're seeing a man who was the same age as Darius when he became uh, the conqueror of uh, Belshazzar uh, in Daniel chapter 5. Okay. I'm not sure why I did that, but that was for the, I hope for the benefit of our children. Brethren, today we're in Genesis 15. We're coming back to the Abrahamic covenant briefly. And then next week we're going to progress on to the uh, uh, Mosaic covenant, then the Davidic covenant, and then finally the new covenant in Christ. Although today we're going to be uh, mentioning that uh, in the sermon as well. I'm going to read the entirety of Genesis 15, then I'm going to read 16 verses from Ezekiel 36. So there's a lot of scripture being read today in our hearing. That's a good thing because it's truth, and uh, we, we need all the truth we can get. Uh, and then we're going to spend, uh, in, during the sermon, much more time in the New Testament uh, as we uh, consider the Abrahamic covenant. So let's begin in Genesis 15. Hear once again the very words of God. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am Almighty God, walk before me and be blameless, and I will make my covenant between me and you and will multiply multiply you exceedingly. Then Abram fell on his face and God talked with him saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be a father of many nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you a father of many nations, and I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you, and your descendants after you in their generations, for an everlasting covenant, to be God to you and your descendants after you. Also, I give to you and your descendants after you the land in which you are a stranger, all the land of Canaan, as an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male child among you shall be circumcised. And you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised every male child in your generations. He who is born in your house or bought with money from any foreigner who is not your descendant. He who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money must be circumcised. And my covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. And the uncircumcised male child who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Then God said to Abraham, as for Sarah, your wife, you shall not call her, uh, excuse me, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. 
and I will bless her and also give you a son by her. Then I will bless her and she shall be a mother of nations. Kings of peoples shall be from her. Then Abram fell on his face and laughed and said in his heart, Shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? And shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before me. Then God said, No, Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant and with his descendants after him. And as for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him, and I will make him fruitful and will multiply him exceedingly. He shall beget twelve princes, and I will make him a great nation. But my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at, his, at this time next year. <clears throat> then he finished talking with him, and God went up from Abraham. So Abraham took Ishmael his son, all who were born in his house, and all who were bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house, and circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very same day, as God had said to him. Abram was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, and Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very same day, Abraham was circumcised and his son Ishmael, and all the men of his house, born in the house or bought with money from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. And now from Ezekiel chapter 36, I'm going to begin reading in verse 20. When they came to the nations, wherever they went, they profaned my holy name. When they said of them, these are the people of the Lord, and yet they have gone out of his land. But I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations, wherever they went. Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, I do not do this for your sake, O house of Israel, but for my holy name's sake, which you have profaned among the nations wherever you went. And I will sanctify my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. And the nations shall know that I am the Lord, says the Lord God, when I am hallowed in you before their eyes. For I will take from among the nations gather you out of all countries and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. Then you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers. You shall be my people, and I will be your God. I will deliver you from all your uncleanness. I will call for the grain and multiply it and bring no famine upon you. And I will multiply the fruit of your trees and the increase of your fields, so that you need never again bear the reproach of famine among the nations. Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds, that they were not good, and you will loathe yourselves in your own sight. For your iniquities and your abominations. Not for your sake do I do this, says the Lord God. Let it be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded for your own ways, O house of Israel. 
Thus says the Lord God, on the day that I cleanse you from all your iniquities, I will also enable you to dwell in the cities, and the ruins shall be rebuilt. The desolate land will be tilled instead of lying desolate in the sight of all who pass by. So they will say, this land that was desolate has become like the Garden of Eden, and the wasted, desolate, and ruined cities are now fortified and inhabited. Then the nations, which are left all around you, shall know that I, the Lord, have rebuilt the ruined places and planted what was desolate. I, the Lord, have spoken it, and I will do it. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, as we consider the Abrahamic covenant once again and the sign of the covenant circumcision that you gave Abraham that spoke of the cleansing, the the bloody ritual that would bring cleansing to your people, a foreshadow of what Christ would do for us. Father, we pray that we would be faithful to your scriptures as we look upon that everlasting covenant made with Abraham as being part of the covenants that we enjoy today in the new covenant in its fullness. Bless this hour, bless our study, and may it goad us to love and good works to share this good news with others. And this we pray in the mighty name of Jesus and for his sake. Amen. Well, first of all, I want to bring greetings from, from Middlesbrough, from the folks at Grace Fellowship. Uh, they love you all, and they are grateful that occasionally you, they, you send me down there. And I understand Tom did a, a fine job last week, and that my, my, uh, my job's in jeopardy now uh, because of that. So uh, anyway, thanks, Tom, for filling the pulpit. I appreciate that. Uh, but I do bring you greetings from, from Middlesbrough. All right. Uh, today, as I've mentioned, we return to the subject of God's covenant of making and keeping, and we're going to look particularly again at the Abrahamic covenant. Several weeks ago, we considered the Abrahamic covenant and God's profound seriousness in cutting his covenant with Abraham. And I, I say that cutting because... That's what this, this notion of covenant means in part. And you may recall that God himself sealed this covenant with a self-maledictory oath when he passed between the cloven carcasses of animals, uh, symbolizing and declaring to Abraham that should he, God, break this covenant, he too would be cloven in two. Now, of course, God doesn't break his promises, fortunately for us. And because of that, he would never have to undergo that that punishment. But God was so serious about this covenant that he made this self-maledictory oath. The self meaning this is to happen to me, maledictory, the the mal part of that is uh, something very negative, and the dictory, a a proclamation. So a self-maledictory oath is a proclamation of a curse on myself if I don't keep the covenant. So that's what God had done passing between the cloven animals. In today's passage, another cutting takes place. It is the sign of the covenant that Abraham is to take upon himself and his generations after him as an everlasting covenant. And this we see in chapter 15, verse 7. An everlasting covenant. I don't think we often consider the Abrahamic covenant as an everlasting covenant, but all of the major covenants in the Old Testament are everlasting covenants. 
Remember, we looked at that specifically in the Noahic covenant. And how do we know that it's an everlasting covenant? Have you seen a, a, a rainbow in the sky? And that's what? That's a sign that God won't do something, right? And that's the covenant He made with the earth. That He'll never bring a curse on the earth like He did in the days of Noah to cover it with a flood. Uh, that kind of curse will never come upon the earth again. And so God reminds us of His everlasting covenants through His signs and seals. And so that's a very important part of the whole aspect of God making covenants with us. And that's what we're going to focus our attention on today. So again, there's another cutting that takes place in our passage. And so why do we still use the sign? uh, So why don't we still use the sign of the Abrahamic covenant if it's an everlasting covenant? Why don't we circumcise on the eighth day as Abraham was told by God? Well, we're going to get to that specifically. uh, and, And of course, there is some tension here. If this is a perpetual covenant, and that sign was a sign of the perpetual covenant, why, ha- why doesn't that continue? I'm going to answer that question in a few minutes. Today I will guide us through the passages both in the Old and New Testaments that speak to this very aspect of the continuity of God's covenantal practices. And this is what I think is largely lost in evangelicalism today. We don't see that continuity from the very first verses of the Bible right to the end, that God is unfolding a whole, a whole ex, uh, expanse of understanding of himself, his ways, which are not our ways. That's why we pray that at the very beginning of our worship today, uh, actually before worship, our prayer of preparation, acknowledging God, our, our thoughts are not like yours. Our ways are not like yours. We need to be taught and we need to yield to that. And so please, do that with us today. That's what we're praying when we pray those prayers. Our thoughts are not your thoughts. Our ways are not your ways. Mold us into, conform us into your image so that we can follow after righteousness and the power that comes with it because there is great power that comes with righteousness. Okay. Previously, God had confirmed his participation in this covenant, in in the cutting ritual that we've already spoken of. But now, Abraham and his progeny are required to undergo a cutting ritual uh, in confirmation of their participation in the covenant. Notice that if we're made in the image of God, when he does something, we're to follow after that. We're to reflect that very thing. So Abraham and his progeny, the men of his, his loins, if you will, are going to have to follow after God who went through this cutting ritual. Now, God's a spirit, so he physically couldn't be cut. But Abraham could physically be cut. And blood shed, that's going to be important. We understand that without the shedding of blood, there's no remitting of sin, right? That's what the scriptures teach us in the book of Hebrews. We'll get to that in a few minutes. But Abraham is following after the picture that God gave him when God, when God passed through the cloven animals. There has to be a bloody ritual to deal with my people, and that's going to start with you, Abraham, and your progeny with uh, circumcision. In today's passage, this cutting off of the foreskin of the male child on the eighth day after birth is a symbolic cleansing act 
that signifies an action that is to take place in the hearts of those male children before God. What happens with the foreskin, and that's why I read the passage in Ezekiel, I'm going to change your heart, God says. I'm going to take a stony heart out of you, and I'm going to give you a heart of flesh. Well, that's in a way, that's being pictured in, in circumcision. I'm going to take the filthiness away from you, and I'm going to leave something for you that's clean and pure. That's what God is telling Abraham in this ritual. You need to be cleansed. And so this is going to happen in this ritual. We often don't think of circumcision as being a cleansing ritual, but that's exactly what it was. That that was in the minds of the, the Hebrews in the early days. This is a cleansing ritual. I believe this que- uh, the, the question of why this is necessary can best be answered in the New Testament. And we have the benefit. Of course, the Old Testament believers didn't have the benefit of the writings of the apostles. We do. So we need to go there to get some better uh, uh, clarity as to what's happening here. And there are two passages that help us, uh, uh, actually three, but two that I want to mention first. The first being in Romans chapter 2, verses 28 and 29, and then in Galatians chapter 3, verses 6 through 8. And there we read these words from the pen of the Apostle Paul, beginning in Romans chapter 2, verse 28. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. So the Apostle Paul says, what happens with the circumcised flesh is pointing to something else. It's, it's, a, it's a provision that God gave us, a physical provision pointing to a reality that's different. And that is the circumcision of the heart. That's why I read Ezekiel 36. God says, I'm going to take, I'm going to circumcise your heart. I'm going to take out that filthy, dirty heart of yours, and I'm going to give you a clean one. I'm going to sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. That's important for the new covenant, and we're going to get to that in a minute. But God says circumcision is a picture of what's to happen to man's heart. When you give your heart to God, God changes it. He takes that heart of filth out of you and gives you a heart that's pure and clean. A heart of righteousness. Now that's going to be really important when we get to the, to the new covenant. What does, what does God say He's going to do in the New Covenant? I, I'm going to write my laws on your heart. I'm going, to, I'm going to be so involved in your life through faith that I'm going to purge your heart and I'm going to write my laws on your heart and your mind. That's what He's going to do. I'm going to give you righteousness in your heart. That's how... That's how imminent God is with us in salvation. I'm going to change who you are. All right, I'm getting ahead of myself. That's actually a few weeks down the road here. Um, Okay, so let's get back to this. Hear this again from Romans chapter 2. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew 
who is one inwardly. The circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. Well, that's a definition of what a Jew is, a person who has a circumcised heart. Is that what you think of when you think of a Jew? Think about your own heart. Is your heart circumcised? Has God changed your heart? If he hasn't, he is offering that to you in Christ Jesus. Humble yourselves before him. Cast your cares on him, Jesus, for he cares for you, the scriptures say. Let's consider Galatians 3, 6-8. through Just as Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness... Therefore know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand saying, In you all the nations will be blessed. Okay, if God circumcises hearts, and those people are the ones that become Jews, if you will, And then Paul says, just as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness, therefore know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, in you all the nations shall be blessed. You see where I'm going with this? Brethren, there's a reason why we sang the God of Abraham prays. He's the same God we have. We are sons and daughters of Abraham by faith. Our hearts have been circumcised, those who've trusted in Christ, and God's cut out that filthy heart and given us a heart of flesh. When we consider these two passages in light of the promise of the Abrahamic covenant being an everlasting covenant, all of this becomes a whole lot more clear. What God promised to Abraham, what God promised to Abraham, he did so through faith. Did did Abraham earn anything from God? Did Did he put God in his debt? Did he do something that God was obliged to act upon? No. God made a unilateral covenant with Abraham. He made a promise. And he said, I'm going to keep that promise, and I'm so sure I'm going to do it, I'm going to take a self-maledictory oath against myself that if I fail, I will be destroyed. Well, God kept that, didn't he? And Abraham, reflecting that same kind of faithfulness as best he could, was told to do a ritual that points to the circumcision of the heart. And he did it. And he circumcised Ishmael. And all of those in his household, all the men in his household, as God had told him. Moreover, this kind of heart was to be exhibited by both men and women as covenant members, not just the male members down the road. Initially, it was just the male members. It was the foreskin of the males that was to be circumcised. Here, and this, this brings me to a point that I, I wasn't going to spend a lot of time on, but I think I at least, at, at least need to mention it here. As these covenants unfold in the Scripture, 
they, they touch more and more things. And they're in harmony with one another. So think about the early, the early parts of the Bible. You've got the, you've got the covenant of life that Adam is created into, and he breaks that covenant. He's cast out of the, the uh, garden. He's taken away from, what, what is the covenant sign in the garden? What's the covenant sign in the garden? Anybody want to tackle that one? It's the tree of life. That was the covenant sign in the garden. They had access to the tree of life. That was the thing they lost when they broke covenant with God. They'll regain that in the book of Revelation at the end. They'll regain access to the tree of life. We will regain that. Because this is about redemption, about reconciliation, about bringing back that which was lost. God's doing all that. And when all this is over, we're going to have access to the tree of life again. But that's the, the covenant sign in the, in, the, in the garden that's lost. And then God kills animals and gives Adam and Eve clothing from animals. Why? It's to talk, that's to, to show forth God is going to cover their sins with a bloody sacrifice. That bloody sacrifice began right at the garden. And then now we're up to the, in, in, the Noahic covenant. The, God restores the promises given to, to Adam, uh, to Noah, to fill the earth and, and, and subdue it. And, uh, and then now we're here at the Abrahamic covenant and God is expanding that, that harmonious reclamation. That it's being expanded. First, the male children are going to have to receive the sign of the covenant. But in the new covenant, both the women and the men are going to be recipients of the sign of the covenant. And we'll get to that in a few moments. Thus, for this covenant to be an everlasting covenant, with its members to receive the sign, the sign of necessity must change in type if it's going to be for men and women. It has to change in type. But the purpose of the sign doesn't change. The typology changes but the purpose doesn't change. In other words, the sign of God's covenant with his people would need to change so that men and women could both receive it. But what it stood for would not change at all. The heart needed to be cleansed. And that's what this original circumcision was all about. It was something had to be, filthy had to be taken away and replaced with something pure. Now Paul speaks of this as well in his letter to the Colossian church. In chapter 2 of that letter, Paul is concerned about the Colossians being led astray with the philosophies of men. There he contrasts the philosophies of men with the efficacy of the cross of Christ, where the bloody sacrifice of our Savior was sufficient to cleanse us from our sins. And here in Colossians chapter 2, Paul ties the cleansing from sin to both circumcision and baptism when he writes... Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him, who is the head of all, who is the head of all principality and power. In him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, 
buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And you, being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it, meaning in the cross. Here, Paul links circumcision to baptism. You're going to be circumcised with a circumcision that's made without hands. Not like the one that Abraham's doing with Ishmael and all his progeny. Though that picture is right, the way it happens in the New Covenant is changed. It's done through baptism. And here, Paul says, buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And you, being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he is made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses having wiped out the handwriting of requirements. He's done that in the new covenant with a new sign, and that is a baptism. So now we see the continuity of the Abrahamic covenant with the new covenant in Christ Jesus. The bloody ritual of circumcision, being both a cleansing ritual and a self-maledictory oath for Abraham and his progeny, is then fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Jesus was both circumcised and baptized. Keep that in mind. Jesus was both circumcised and baptized. He brought the promises of the Abrahamic covenant forward to be melded together with the promises of the new covenant. That's what's happening in part at Christ's baptism. Think about this. Why did Christ need to be baptized? What, what, what is baptism to us but a picture of cleansing, right? Why did Christ need to be baptized? We're going to answer that question when we get to the new covenant. You may already have it ruminating in your minds. Uh, I, hope, I hope I'm goading you to think about these concepts as they <laughs> splash across the scriptures. And they, they, they go from one covenant to the next covenant to the next covenant. All of these things... It's, it's, as I've said before, it's like a great tapestry and the same thread starts at the beginning and goes to the end, but it changed its colors as the story uh, is modified and changed over time. That's what's happening here. Okay. By his circumcision, he would need to keep the righteous requirements of the law, Jesus Christ, which he did in all their fullness. But he also bore our sins on the cross which meant that he would need to be cut off from his heavenly Father and God's people, which he was. Remember back, we just read this from Genesis 17. If you don't receive the circumcision as a covenant member, you're to be thrown out. You're to be cut off. In other words, you're a covenant breaker. That's what he's saying there. Our sin breaks covenant too with God because we're in defiance of what God tells us to do. Jesus became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him, the scriptures say. 
When Jesus took himself upon himself sin, what did God the Father have to do? Turn his gaze away from his son. It's as if he broke the covenant. This is, these are concepts that come together and, and, and humble us, but think about this for a minute. Christ didn't have to do what he did, except that he, 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 in his own mind, I am going to keep the decree of the Father. And the Father decreed this, I'm going to do it. I am going to, to break covenant with my Father, becoming sin, that these people, you, me, can become the righteousness of God by my sacrifice. Now, he was the God-man. That's why he needed to die. We had this discussion this week, didn't we, Shay? Why did, why did, it, why did, it need, why did we need a God-man to die for us? Well, because he's an eternal being. His sacrifice would be an eternal sacrifice. It wouldn't just be a temporal sacrifice. The kinsman redeemer in the Old Testament, somebody can take the place of another and, and uh, uh, whether it be in punishment or in, in, uh, in the case of uh, Ruth, uh, redeem her out of her circumstance. Uh, the kinsman redeemer can take the place of another. But Jesus can take the place of all of us. Because he's an eternal being. And when he became a man, he bore all of the sins of all of those who the Father had chosen, chosen for salvation. And he could because he was an eternal being. And then he rose the third day. He conquered sin and death. Okay, I'm getting ahead of myself. Let me get back to the... I thought this was going to be a shorter sermon today. It's getting longer already. By his circumcision, he would need to keep the righteous requirements of the law, which he did in all their fullness. But he also bore our sins on the cross, which meant that he would need to be cut off from his heavenly Father and God's people, which he was as well, having died and been buried. But because our sins were buried with him in baptism, the cleansing ritual of the new covenant, when he rose from the dead, we have been made alive with him, being justified by grace through faith in him. And that faith is accounted to us as righteousness, just as it was to Abraham, our forefather, in righteousness. This is why Paul can call all those who place their faith in Jesus Christ, the God-man, as sons of Abraham in Galatians 3.7. And I don't know if you learned this as a child in your Sunday school classes, we probably need to teach this to our children. That little uh, Sunday school uh, song. Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them and so are you. So let's all praise the Lord. I hope you're, if you haven't taught that to your children, you need to. That is so theologically astute. We are sons and daughters of Abraham. Now, why do I make such a big deal of all this? Brethren, we live in a day when so many Christians want us to believe that the Jews and the Gentiles are distinct and different people in the mind and purposes of God. And that couldn't be further from the truth. 
No one comes to God the Father but by whom? Say it. Jesus Christ. And through His atoning sacrifice, no one comes to the Father but by Him. Any notion of restoring the temple and its sacrifices in Jerusalem is nothing more than an abomination to God. And the men's Bible study, we've been in the book of Hebrews, we just got through chapter 10, and we came to that very conclusion, didn't we, gentlemen? That it's an abomination to think that, that animal sacrifices needs to resume. Jesus Christ died once for all. For all. Jesus has rent the veil to the Holy of Holies. He rent it in two, giving all men of every tribe, tongue, nation, and people access to God the Father through His sacrifice on the cross. Jesus is the way to God and is the only way to God. To assert otherwise is an affront to God and only invites His wrath. God does not change. His ways are revealed to us in the Scriptures of both the Old and New Testaments. The Old Testament is not a discarded first draft. On the contrary, those Scriptures lay the groundwork for the New Covenant, and this we will see more vividly in each unfolding covenant till we get to the New Covenant, which will just... It will, it's like a flower that blossoms. What... All these older, the old covenant covenants, the Old Testament covenants, are like the stem and the leaves, and then the thing when Christ comes, it's like the flower that blooms. Just as the Apostle Paul ties the covenant of Abraham to the new covenant, we shall see the Mosaic and Davidic covenants in the coming weeks come to the crescendo in the harmony of the new covenant. Now, there is some, one other thing I want to make mention of briefly uh, from this covenant that we read in, in chapter 17. Sometimes the Abrahamic covenant is called the covenant of promise. What, what is promised to Abraham in the covenant of promise? Well, it's the promised land. In verse 8 of Genesis 17, we read, Also I gave to you and your descendants after you the land in which... You are a stranger. All the land of Canaan has an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. That's the covenant of the promise portion of the Abrahamic covenant. So Canaan, now if you think about it, if you looked at a, 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 a map of the Near East, uh, where, where Israel is today, the land of Canaan was largely the the uh, shore area of, of uh, what is today Israel. Also, the Gaza Strip would be included in that, which is now part of the, the Palestinian uh, lands. Uh, but all of that land was given to uh, Abraham by way of promise. Now, let me ask this question. If, if the Abrahamic covenant is a microcosm, uh, if you will, of the covenants that are to come to fullness in Christ, is there a covenant promise of land that comes to us in the new covenant? I would say there is. 
Hear Matthew 28, 16 through 20. Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had appointed for them. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, Hear this very, the first things he says, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Jesus Christ is the only begotten Son of the Father. And the firstborn son gets what in the Old Testament in terms of an inheritance? A double portion. Jesus God was given all authority in heaven and on earth. He's been given the double portion. He possesses it already. It's not some future possession. It's a reality when he says this to his disciples. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. By the way, the word amen is a self-maledictory oath. I'm going to speak to that when we get to the New Covenant. But I want to emphasize this to you folks. Abraham was promised Canaan. Jesus Christ was promised in Psalm 2 and in Psalm 110 the whole world. And he now possesses it. He possesses it now. That's the promised land to the church of Jesus Christ. We have a promised land as well. It's the whole world. Every tribe, tongue, nation, and people. God will possess it all. Does possess it all. Brethren, we are New Age Christians. Did you know that? You're a New Age Christian? We live in the age of the New Covenant. It is high time that we see the world and all who dwell therein as those who are under the dominion of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And they need to hear that good news. Because that is good news. There's a Savior who has purchased redemption for the world. And you, people of the world, you need to hear it. And bow the knee to the King. Because there's no more gracious person in heaven or on earth who you could bow your knee to. Let's pray together.